Why don't we open our Bibles or navigate over to Exodus chapter 12, and we're putting in at verse 43. We'll start there, and we'll finish up this morning at Exodus 13, verse 16. The topic, Moses gives further details about the removal of all leaven from households during what is to be an annual observance called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The title of our message, Leaven Can Wait. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we appreciate the opportunity to be here. It's a privilege, Lord, to gather openly and safely. We thank you for the Word of God. We have, each of us, probably several Bibles, many versions on our tablets and phones. Uh, Lord, I pray that all of that would not distract us from just listening to the simple voice of your Spirit, that still small voice within us, making application of the Word of God. Focus our attention, Lord, on the things that are most needful, the things that you want us to know and learn, and the people that you want us to be. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. A lot of diets and diet plans out there, Weight Watchers, Jenny Craig, Nutrisystem, Adkins, Paleo, Keto, Slim Fast, South Beach, Dash, Mayo Clinic. That's just the tip of a huge iceberg. According to ABC News, 100 million people fuel a $20 billion weight loss industry. If you're going to shell out cash for around $6,000, you can spend a week losing weight in Switzerland at a place called Beau Rivage Palace. It includes massage and personal training sessions. Every now and then, a diet said to be based on the Bible gains popularity. The Daniel diet is one. Daniel fasted twice. During the first fast, he ate only vegetables and water to set himself apart for God. For a second fast, mentioned in a later chapter, Daniel stopped eating meat, wine, and other rich foods. Adapting that, the First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu holds an annual 21-day Daniel fast for members to not only encourage healthy eating, but to help people keep their faith by refocusing their attention on diet. My favorite Bible diet, I've mentioned it to you before, is the Ezekiel diet. It's really a misnomer because all you get from the prophet Ezekiel is a recipe for a certain type of bread. Ezekiel was uh, required by God to make the bread from a restricted list of ingredients. He could use wheat, barley, beans, lentils, millet, and spelt. The prophet was required to eat this bread and nothing else for a period of 390 days while lying on his side to symbolize the coming disobedience and defilement of the Israelites. Proponents of Ezekiel bread always neglect to tell you how the bread was supposed to be baked. I'll read this from Ezekiel 4.12. You shall eat it as barley cakes and bake it using fuel of human waste in their sight. Pretty sure that's not happening today. But I can see where it's an effective diet if you have to use the recommended fuel because you're pretty much going to lose your appetite. (laughs) Honey, what's that smell? Cooking some Ezekiel bread. Right. When the Israelites were delivered from Egypt, they were given a strict menu for the Passover meal. Roasted lamb, bitter herbs, unleavened bread. The morning they left Egypt, they took only unleavened bread for their journey. Later, after they entered the promised land, they were to follow up the annual Passover meal by eating unleavened bread for a week straight, observing what we commonly call the feast of unleavened bread. This wasn't meant to be a diet plan. It was rich with symbolism. 
It told the story of their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. As we discuss some of that symbolism, we want to suggest what all this might mean to us as Christians who are under no obligation to observe Passover or unleavened bread as feasts. And so it's always incumbent upon us to insert ourselves in the story in a meaningful, thematic, contextual way, even though we are not subject to these same feasts. To that end, I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, you have the power of an unleavened life. And number two, you have the priorities of a redeemed life. Let's take a look at our unleavened life first, beginning in verse 43. Now, as great as yeast is for baking, it is an agent of corruption. It is therefore used in the Bible as a symbol of evil in general. In the New Testament, for example, the church at Corinth was tolerating the sexual sin of one of its professing members. The Apostle Paul wrote to them about it, and he said, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the leaven. He compared the sexual sin and the sinner to leaven that would corrupt the entire church if not dealt with. His counsel was to remove the sinner. Paul went on to say, then you will be like fresh bread made without yeast, and that is what you are. Now, because of our relationship with Jesus, we are considered unleavened. We don't become unleavened by removing sin, as important as it is to do that. We are considered by God to be unleavened and therefore guard against allowing corruption to enter our lives and our church. We are unleavened, but we still sin, do we not? So that tells me that what the apostle means is that we have the power to not sin. We have, by virtue of the indwelling Holy Spirit, the power of an unleavened life. And that's an important thing to know. When you're struggling, you're seeking counsel or dealing with something, it's important to know that you are already positionally in a place where you can have victory. You are an unleavened person. You have the power of an unleavened life, and that means you can do what the Bible tells you to do. I ran across this quote attributed to R.A. Torrey. It captures what I'm trying to say. Torrey said, the Holy Spirit can take a man whose mind is blind to the truth of God, whose will is at enmity with God and set on sin, and transform that man, impart to him God's nature so that he thinks God's thoughts, wills what God wills, loves what God loves, and hates what God hates. That describes you if you're a believer in Jesus. You have the power of an unleavened life, and so keep that in mind as we take a look at the verses in context. And so verse 43, and the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it, but every man's servant who is bought for money, when you have circumcised him, then he may eat it, and a sojourner and a hired servant shall not eat it. So the 10th wonder, you know, the, t the death of the firstborn of man and beast had just occurred. The Egyptians had given the Israelites tremendous spoil and sent them on their way out of Egypt. Moses had earlier mentioned that a mixed multitude went with the Israelites. The question would naturally come up, who besides Israelites could participate in the future Passover feasts? Moses instructed them that it could be celebrated by Gentiles who converted to Judaism by becoming circumcised which was the physical sign of the covenant that God had made with Abraham. So Passover was at once both restricted to the Jews and it was open to anyone who believed in God. Hearing this, the Jews should have understood that God had saved them for a great purpose 
which was to reveal him to other nations and peoples of the world. It wasn't, the God of the Bible isn't exclusively the God of the nation of Israel. They were to share him with the other nations. They became the preeminent nation with a responsibility to share him with all other Gentiles. And so in verse 20, uh, 46, in one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. Passover wasn't a picnic to be enjoyed outdoors. It wasn't a barbecue. It was restricted to indoors to remind future generations that the angel of the Lord had been outside killing the firstborn of man and beast in every house that lacked lamb's blood on their doorposts. And so it was to be eaten indoors. As far as not breaking bones, this is prophetic that Jesus, the future final lamb of God, would not have a bone of his body broken, even though the legs of those who were crucified uh, were commonly broken to effect a quick death. Uh, But when they came to Jesus, he had already dismissed his own spirit, so there was no need to break his legs. And so uh, he, in death, fulfilled a prophecy uh, that goes all the way back to the original Passover. Verse 47, all the congregation of Israel shall keep it. When a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised and then let him come near and keep it. And he shall be as a native of the land for no uncircumcised person shall eat it. One law shall be for the native born and for the stranger who dwells among you. And so as I said, Israel was to represent God and invite Gentiles to convert to him, to believe him. Once converted, a Gentile and a Jew were under the same law. They were considered equal. Verse 50, thus all the children of Israel did uh, as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. If I'm remembering correctly, this is at least the second time they are commended for being doers of God's word. They started well. Uh, Sadly, most of you know the story, they did not finish well. Anyone can start well. It's endings that are hard. And so the advice that the Bible gives us, some of it, don't grow weary in well-doing, throw off weight that holds you back, run to the finish line of your faith. If you've been a Christian for uh, a long time, uh, you want to finish well. And uh, it's sometimes difficult for various reasons. Uh, But uh, consider that you're in the race Uh, Don't stop. Verse 51, it came to pass on that very same day that the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt according to their armies. This is interesting because they were brickmakers and farmers. And so the Egyptians had them uh, make their bricks, but they also had their own crops and fields and livestock. And so they had this dual vocation going on. They had no military training. Israel didn't have a standing army. And yet God saw them as an army in various ranks. We too are soldiers in a spiritual warfare. We fight battles every day. We use spiritual weapons available to us in order to defeat fell foes. And so, um, you know, uh, our warfare is very different uh, than warfare in the world. We're not really equipped for it until we become Christians and start into our uh, armory, as it were, You read about it in Ephesians chapter 6 and elsewhere. So let's move into chapter 13, but I want to begin with verse 3 for now. We'll come back and look at verses 1 and 2 under our second point. 
And so 13.3, and Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by strength of hand the Lord brought you out of this place, no leavened bread shall be eaten. To help future generations remember, in addition to observing Passover, there was going to be another observance that followed on its heels, it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Verse, 30, uh, four, verse four, excuse me, on this day you are going out in the month Abib. God gave Israel a lunar calendar, but the months were not given names, only numbers. And so a lot of times when you're reading the Old Testament, it will say in the first month or in the eighth month or in the seventh month because God didn't name the months. The Jews named the months after the Babylonian captivity. Abib is probably an Egyptian name. It would come to be called Nisan. It corresponds to April on our calendar. Uh, and so the, the months had numbers, not names. They got names later. Abib, probably Egyptian, we're not sure, but this is the month uh, currently known as Nisan. And verse 5, it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey that you shall keep this service in this month. Now, God had just called them armies, and here they learned that there would be hostile armies to fight and powerful nations to overthrow. So this is kind of a, I mean, it's pretty obvious, but it's also a reading between the lines kind of thing. So while God is speaking to them, all of a sudden, if you're paying attention, did he just say armies? Huh, I wonder what that means. And then he mentions all of these hostile nations and peoples that are living in the land promise you. And if you're thinking straight, you understand, hey, there's going to be some fighting going on uh, when we get to the promised land. You remember that song, that pop song, I Beg Your Pardon? I Never Promised You a Rose Garden? I was going to sing the whole thing, but I don't really know it. So anyway, I'll just break into In the Jungle if I start doing that, but... There was serious work to be done in the promised land, not just gardening. And so I don't know what the people thought, uh, you know, when, that they were being delivered and going into the promised land, but first of all, there was a long waiting period to get in there because God was going to instruct them at Mount Sinai. Of course, we know they never got in there because of their own sin, but it was going to be a, a pretty difficult uh, from one point of view. You, you need to have faith to believe that God was going to help you overcome these enemies. Uh, and so the Lord is not holding anything back. He's telling them the truth uh, and uh, giving them hope at the same time, but also letting them know that it was going to be tough. The goal of your Christian life shouldn't be to get to retirement and hit cruise control. I don't know what you want to do in your business life or your general life. That's your business. But as a Christian, there is no retirement. We're to be like Caleb in the book of Joshua. When he entered the promised land, he was a very old man, seeing he and Joshua were the only ones of their generation who survived the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And so they were uh, the two spies that went into the land and said, hey, we can take them. The other spies said, no, we can't. I'm getting ahead in the story, of course, but God said, well, then none of this generation is going into the promised land except for Joshua and Caleb. So they had to hang around 40 years while Israel wandered in the wilderness while all that generation died off. And then as old men, Joshua led 
the children of Israel. And then Caleb, even older than Joshua, when they were distributing the land, he steps forward and he says, I want a mountain to climb with giants on it. And he wasn't talking about eight feet tall basketball players. He was talking about what the Bible describes as the Nephilim, these race of giants that were 12, 15 feet tall and were pretty agile warriors. And so Caleb says, man, I'm over 100 years old, but who cares? God is going to give me the victory. I'll climb the mountain first, and then I'll kill the giants second. And so that's, uh, that's a poster boy for Christian retirement right there. I want to retire into a mountain-climbing giant killer. So keep that in mind. Verse 6, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and no unleavened bread shall be seen among you, uh, or no leavened, excuse me, bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. Passover is Nisan 14, then unleavened bread runs for seven days from Nisan 15 through Nisan 22. They didn't have those yeast packets that we buy, or those little jars of yeast with the tiny granules. Yeast is a naturally occurring fungi and would appear, for example, on the surface of grapes. They would remove the yeast by mixing it with water containing natural sugars, and it would produce enough yeast to make bread rise. And so they had to kind of harvest their yeast and and put natural sugar water uh, from dates or different things, and then they would get enough yeast as it would start to grow to put in to uh, the <coughs> leaven and, or into the dough and, and get it leavened. And so um, that's what yeast was all about. So uh, they had to get rid of that anywhere in their house. And, and uh, this would have been pretty difficult, to tell you the truth. Uh, verse 8, and you shall tell your son in that day, this is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. They had to leave in haste, and that's what unleavened bread would represent since there was no time to wait for it to rise. And it shall be as a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law may be on your mouth, for with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. Now, later in the history of Israel, certain Jews took to wearing boxes on their foreheads and their forearms that contain key Bible verses. These are commonly called phylacteries. And so you've seen this probably anytime you've seen, uh, you know, an Easter special, Jesus of Nazareth or all that, they've got the prayer boxes. Or even sometimes you see this in modern Judaism. Uh, That's where this originally comes from. It comes from a literal reading of this verse. And so the question is, is that what God intended? Did he intend for them to read this literally and strap boxes to their head and forearm? Well, as far as I know, they didn't put anything in their mouths, even though in the same breath it says the Lord's law may be in your mouth. And so to be on my forehead, on my hand, and in my mouth... I know what I'll do. I'll make a prayer box for my forehead and my hand, and I'll just ignore the part about my mouth. Uh, And so, see, I don't think things work that way. I mean, if you're going to go literal, go all the way. How can you take part of it as being literal but not all of it? Clearly, this was meant uh, that whatever you think or do or say, it ought to be in accordance with God's law. While we do take the Bible literally, 
that's a good general statement, it does contain figurative language. And so God is saying uh, something very different here. He's not telling them to wear objects that have God's word in it. It says in verse 10, you shall therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. God was here adding to his annual calendar, and as I keep telling you, we're gonna see more and more on his agenda as we progress, seven feasts, four in the spring, three in the fall. Now, we have the whole story, as it were. We know that the Passover lamb illustrates Jesus as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He died in your place as your substitute to deliver you from death and give you eternal life. And that's what the Passover lamb symbolized. A substitute had to die for you so that the angel of the Lord, the death angel, it's never really called the death angel, but we refer to it that way, passed over you. And that was a picture of Jesus who would die for the sins of the whole world uh, so that those who applied his blood to their lives would have death pass over them and inherit eternal life. And we know he fulfilled the Passover by dying on the cross exactly as the Passover lambs were being sacrificed in the temple. And because he lived a sinless life and in death saw no corruption, he fulfills the feast of unleavened bread, as it were. He lived a completely unleavened life from conception uh, through his resurrection. Now, we'll see later that during this same observance is the feast of first fruits, which is an illustration of Jesus' resurrection from the dead as the first fruits of all those who would believe in him. And so do you believe in him? Then you are understood to be in him. That means what is true of him is true of you. By virtue of being saved and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you therefore have the power of his unleavened life in order to overcome sin and the world. We talked about diets. Most of them have a lot to say about your consumption of water, how important it is to overall health. With regards to your spiritual life, Jesus invites you to ask him and then believe you've received what he calls rivers of living water. You really do have the power of an unleavened life. Say no to sin. Usually what we try to do is come up with five ways or 10 ways or, you know, of overcoming sin. Um, if you want to do that, that's great, but you have to start with the position that, oh, I have the indwelling Holy Spirit. I, live the, I can live the unleavened life uh, uh, in the power of an unleavened life. You need to know that you can overcome these things before you try to overcome. Otherwise, you're always defeated because you're trying to come up with some discipline of your own to overcome something. And a lot of times, you just need to be told, hey, you can overcome this because the Holy Spirit indwells you. And so that's what this is telling us this morning. You have the power of this unleavened life. Paul the Apostle said, you are, talking to the church, he says, you are unleavened. Man, if there ever was a church that was filled with sin and argumentation and confrontation, he said, but you guys need to realize you are leavened. God sees you a certain way. You can live up to that position. And so that's super important. Uh, if you're gonna go away disappointed that I didn't give you the five steps to unleavening your life, uh, all you need is that one step. And then the Lord, once you believe that you can have victory, God will lead you into it. And so number two... You also have the priorities of a redeemed life. Back in 2013, 
an Indian farmer decided not to sell his prized bull for a then world record price of $1.7 million. Locally, every now and then, you'll see a truck from Worldwide Sires. It's their mission to genetically modify uh, bulls, to produce better bulls. Some of them are extremely valuable commodities. Israelites had flocks and herds. They were extremely valuable commodities to them. They meant life and death, actually. And so we read, going back to chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it is mine. Now, what does that mean, consecrate? Well, that's what these next verses explain. And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and gives it to you, that you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb, that is, every firstborn that comes from an animal which you have, the males shall be the Lord's. Now, before we continue talking about the firstborn of man and beast, we need to stop on the word when in verse 1. It shall be when the Lord brings you into the land. Getting to the promised land was a matter of when, not if. It would have been a tremendous encouragement to the Israelites to know God's plan, especially after having seen in the 10 wonders he performed that he had the power to accomplish it. And so again, if you're listening, you know, God didn't say, if you guys ever make it to the promised land. He said, no, when you get there. Now, there were, these guys were gonna refuse to go in but that wasn't on God, that was on them. Uh, God said, you know, and if you don't go in, your descendants will go in. This is gonna happen. And so what the Lord is communicating here is that this is inevitable. You might as well be a part of it. You, the, the Israelites are gonna take the promised land. And, and that's part of his plan. I was reminded of that old campfire song, when I get to heaven, gonna walk with Jesus. When I get to heaven, gonna see his face. Saved by his wonderful grace. Again, it's a when. If you believe Jesus Christ, heaven is a matter of when, not if. You're not saved based on your performance as a Christian, but on account of his having declared you righteous when the Holy Spirit freed your will in order to choose him. What sin can keep you out of heaven? The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What is that? It's rejecting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It's, it's consciously choosing uh, either to not receive Christ or to totally reject Christ. Well, what about all the other sins I commit? When I get to heaven, I'm going to walk with Jesus. If, if sin kept you out of heaven, we might as well go home and mow our lawns right now. How much sin keeps you out of heaven? How little sin? You've been declared righteous, and God's righteousness has been imputed to you. It's been put into your account. When God sees you as a Christian, he sees Jesus. You are, he vouches for you, and you are in because of him. If you are a believer, you're going to heaven. It's a win, and that's a tremendous thing to know. Now, there's a lot going on with the theme of firstborn. If you start searching, Googling firstborn, I mean, it gets really heady and philosophical, all the different ways of trying to nail this down. But for our purposes in this study, in context, it's as simple as what this one commentator wrote. He put it better than I could, so here's what he said. The setting apart of the firstborn was a grateful acknowledgement of the divine mercy in sparing the firstborn from the midnight destruction. 
The firstborn of the Israelites had been mercifully, mercifully preserved from the stroke of the destroying angel, which had inflicted death upon the firstborn of Egypt in the silent midnight hour. Hence, what more reasonable than that the life that had been thus spared should be separated unto the Lord. In other words, the Lord saved the firstborn of Israel, and so it belongs to him. It's separated unto him. And so great, set apart and consecrate the firstborn. How do you do that? Verse 13, every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, and if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck, and the firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. What? Breaking the neck of donkeys? What just happened? Well, what happened is this. The firstborn of clean animals, later on in, you know, in the Bible you get a list of clean and unclean animals, the firstborn of all clean animals were to be set apart by being sacrificed to God within the first year of their life. Think back on that prized Indian bull or a worldwide sire. If a firstborn, it would have been sacrificed. If not, its firstborn would have to be sacrificed. Suddenly, things got very costly. When you're talking to an agricultural society and you're saying, the firstborn male of every one of your animals belongs to the Lord. And that doesn't mean that you dedicate him. It means you kill it, and it's fully the Lord's. And so the firstborn of certain animals listed by God as unclean, such as a donkey, could not be sacrificed to the Lord. Therefore, it had to be redeemed by the death of a lamb. That is, a lamb had to die in its place. If the donkey was not redeemed by a substitute, its neck had to be broken. It was a choice between redemption or destruction. The firstborn of men also belonged to the Lord, but of course there were never uh, human sacrifices. Moses does not here specify the manner of the redemption of the firstborn of male children, but it was probably originally by a lamb also. The redemption was subsequently changed to a money payment of five shekels in the book of Numbers. Some of these injunctions will change over time as the children of Israel get into the land and have the tabernacle and later the temple. But the idea was every firstborn had to be redeemed by the payment of a substitute. Uh, a lamb had to die in their place. Any unredeemed life had to die. The basic transaction, either you die or a substitute dies in your place. And that's the gospel. You're born dead in trespasses and sins, but Jesus took your place on the cross, dying to offer you redemption. Now, as I said, there's a lot we could say about the theme firstborn in the Bible, but for our purposes today, verses 14 and 15 set the tone. So it shall be, when your son asks you in time to come, saying, what is this? Then you shall say to him, by strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And it came to pass when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the womb, but the firstborn of my sons I redeem. And so here's the situation. You're out and about, and all of a sudden your son says, Daddy, why is that man breaking that little donkey's neck? I mean, this is sort of brutal, right? How many here have broken the neck of a donkey, a baby donkey, a year-old donkey on purpose. Thank you, because I'm a mandatory reporter. But no, this, 
In ancient Israel, this was a, this, your parents will understand this, this was a teachable moment. You try and keep your kids from seeing this kind of stuff, right? But I have to believe that donkeys' necks were being broken left and right or animals were being sacrificed left and right. It was important to pass on the Passover story from generation to generation. The annual observance of Passover with its restricted meal eaten indoors and the accompanying observance of unleavened bread would go a long way towards illustrating the wonder of that night Israel was freed. Passover was so important, though, that the Israelites would also be reminded of it on a daily basis by the consecrating of the firstborn of man and beasts. In a congregation of what we saw last week was nearly six million people with their livestock, firstborn human babies were being delivered all the time. As each firstborn male was redeemed by a substituted lamb and later by money, it was a visual reminder that God had passed over the firstborn of Israel, sparing them on account of the blood of a substituted lamb. In a congregation of nearly six million people with their livestock, firstborn animals were being delivered all the time. As each firstborn male was either sacrificed or had its neck broken, it was a visual reminder that God had passed over the firstborn of Israel's beasts, sparing them too on account of the blood of a substituted lamb. If you wanted a way to keep the Passover fresh on everyone's mind throughout the year, this was it. Passover is so important to the entire theology of the Bible in terms of its teaching of the substitutionary death and pointing to Jesus Christ, that once a year for seven or eight days isn't enough. And so God said, we're going to redeem the firstborn like we did on the night of Passover so that every day you have a reminder of what happened and can teach your children what it means to be saved. Verse 16, it shall be a sign on your hand and as frontlets between your eyes, for by strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. I just can't see taking this literally. It's meant to convey that these redemptions make the Passover as conspicuous as if you had the story written on your forehead for everybody to read. It's like our version today would be wearing, you know, T-shirts and apparel that has a message. It's conspicuous. When you walked through the camp of Israel and later in the Promised Land, their cities and Jerusalem and all, really reminders of the Passover were everywhere because beasts were being born all the time and they were being redeemed and human beings were being born all the time and they were being redeemed. And so it was going on all the time and it was conspicuous, this reminder. John Gill wrote, he said, these laws observed concerning the setting apart the firstlings of their beasts, the redemption of the firstborn of unclean ones and the firstborn of men will bring the reason of it the destruction of the firstborn of Egypt and the preservation of the firstborn of Israel as fresh to remembrance as any token upon the hand put there to bring things to mind. And it will be as easily and as clearly discerned as anything upon a man's forehead may be seen by another. It's like when somebody smiles and they have a huge piece of parsley in their mouth, you know? It's, it's conspicuous and obvious and you hope somebody will tell you that you've got a giant piece of parsley hanging out of your mouth. And so God says, this, when you observe this, when you do this, when you make these redemption payments, it's going to be as obvious as that, that I delivered Israel from Egypt the night of the Passover 
by a substitutionary death. Truth be told, it's easier to wear a phylactery than it is to redeem or to sacrifice the firstborn. I would rather do that than have this whole other system, but that's not what God set up. Martin Lloyd-Jones told a story about the Israelite who went into the house one day to tell his wife and family some great news. He said, the cow just gave birth to twin calves, one red one, one white one. He continued, we must dedicate one of these calves to the Lord. We'll bring them up together, and when the time comes, we'll sell one and keep the proceeds. We'll sell the other and give the proceeds to the work of the Lord. His wife asked him which he was going to dedicate to the Lord. Oh, there's no need to bother about that now, he replied. We'll treat them both the same way. When the time comes, we'll do as I say. Sometime later, he entered the kitchen looking unhappy. His wife said, what happened? He said, well, I have bad news. The Lord's calf died. Get it? If I asked you, do you have the priorities of a redeemed life, what would you say? And before you answer something, the Apostle Paul wrote is helpful. He said, for you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. It's at this point that the Holy Spirit must be invited to take over. I cannot decide for you if you are glorifying God both spiritually and physically. I can't say whether or not what you are giving to the Lord is the dead cow. That's something that all of us need to decide for ourselves. I do know that if you're a believer, you're gonna wanna give the Lord your first and your best. It's the only reasonable thing to do considering who he gave for you, his son, Jesus Christ. And so take a look at your diet plan. We've already mentioned the living water of God, the Holy Spirit. Whoever believes in me, Jesus said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. He indwells you, and that means he empowers you. And then God's word, you know, is compared to meat and honey and milk and bread. That means in it we find all that we need for spiritual life and godliness. Rededicate yourself to a spirit-led life fueled by the word of God, and then revisit yourself as a living sacrifice. Let's pray.